He left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds again gathered around him. And as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came, and to test them, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is going to be fun. He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to divorce a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of hardness of your heart, hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. And from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. <clears throat> oh yeah, it's fun. So I'm just reading a sermon that Lauren previously gave on this text today. No. <laughs> Let no man separate what God has joined together is the overarching theme of today's sermon. It relates to the portion about children that Brian read for us. It relates to uh, much of what I'll talk about in the sermon, but it relates to the, the nature of what God is doing in the world. God is bringing back together what has been separated. God's fidelity and God's promise to the world is such that he will not throw it off, that he will not move on, but that he practices bringing it back together. That is the, the, the sort of challenge of today's text, because when we think about divorce, we think about it primarily within the context of individualized marriages. But what I want to propose is not just individualized marriages, but the context of what Jesus is doing as this dawn of the new age, a people of the new age, is he saying to them that God is bringing the world back together and let no one separate that. If you remember in the Old Testament, God has multiple times in which he, he can throw off his marriage. And, and this is, you know, the image that, that God uses for his relationship to uh, Israel is parent-child marriage. He uses various different ones, but it's, it's God's own metaphor for his relationship to his people is that of marriage. And so God has these instances where it's like, could this be absolved? And yet God stays in fidelity to it. And so as we think about creation in its brokenness and in its distortions and in its disorderedness, 
We might think, ah, this is, this is something in which we can separate and move on from. You find this in um, interesting parts of Christian holiness movements, perhaps, is this idea of that we can separate from the renewal of what God is doing. And what the call is for the Christian community is to be people who are part of that renewal, to not separate what God has joined together. Um, I brought up more than I thought this today. Um, so Lauren is right. It is fun to talk about divorce in a sermon series and, and, to, and to bring this to the forefront, um, partially because it's, it's so entwined with our age. Um, if, if we have these sort of five things after one thing and three things, but the one and three are more obvious, that we practice at Defiance Church, and their word, um, that we read the word, that we are centered around the word, that the word, and, and word was dynamic in the way that we explained it too. It is the way that God speaks to us. Whereas confession was also dynamic. It wasn't just confession, that's the second one. The way we sort of reverberate back to God. We do that in both expressions of our sinfulness, but we also do that in expressions of our praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We do that in the ways in which we do that. The second one is, is a well, and that's is that we aim to be a well-tradition church, which is it's a well and well. I don't know, pun partially intended, I guess. Well and well. Uh, it is a well, and so we aim to, to sort of pull up from the tradition that the, the, the church has gifted us, to not be inventing ourselves anew. The last one is the table. We sit in a room centered around the table. We sit in a room centered around this meal in which Christ has given us. This is where God meets us here. And then uh, uh, the fourth one is order, which is sort of related to today's sermon the most. Is that, is that Jesus, when he responds to this question from the Pharisees, points back to order. What was originally ordered in this way. And I say this a lot, but the point of these things is while they fill in the shape of our worship service, they're meant to fill in the shape of our lives as we go forth. We sit around tables in which we can bless with Christ's presence there, that we go as his hands and feet to other tables, that we go into a world that experiences its disorder and attempt to bring order to it. Um, tradition, we, we go to people, and we go often as people, continually always inventing ourselves anew. What does it mean to find hope in what's come before us so we're not swimming in a mess of always trying to make ourselves new again? We confess as we go first. We reverberate with God's news. And the word we both bring forth in the way that God has spoken to us, but also in reading it in our own devotionals outside of church. Um, so that's sort of the shape. But, but today's sermon is more focused on this order one, which brings us to this quote, which I think describes the age we live in. We all come from divorce. This is an age of the divorce. Things that belong together have been taken apart, and you can't put it all back together again. What you can do is take the only thing, the, what you can do is the only thing you can do. You take two things that ought to be together again, and you put them together. Two things, not all things. So as we walk through this passage, that, that, that's Jesus' response to this question about divorce and, and we point to this renewal of all things, that, that we as humans, 
work at taking apart what God has put together. Let no human, let no person, separate what God has joined together. And so as we exist in the shell of this thing in this age of divorce, in which many things have been fallen and taken apart, things are not in their relation to one another as they should be, is for us to hear this call from God to go as those agents of renewal into the world. Now this is, um, how do we end up on a text like this? Um, the last time we did Mark, we did every week, Sunday as Holy Week, walking through the events leading up to the cross. This year, or last couple years ago as we did Mark, this year as we do Mark, we're sort of reversing it and doing all the events up to Holy Week. Holy Week will have a devotional for us to do on our own to walk the events up to Holy Week. And so I didn't have a way to skip it is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, uh, but I try not to do that. I try to have all of the scriptures speak to us in its own ways. It's just sometimes when you have a chance to sit down and go, oh, you have four choices. Sometimes it's easier to go with one that isn't so contested as this one. Um, but this is where we are, and, and it's the discipline that I try to do to walk into that, um, uh, to walk into talking about this. And, and the reason why I think it fits with Lent for us, for this time of spring cleaning for our souls, is that this is, is a text that speaks to that God touches all the parts of our lives. God touches our human relationships. God touches that one institution that most of us, many of us participate in, that's near to us, that's there when we wake up and there when we go to bed, and that's our marriages, that God is intimately involved near to our lives. And like I said, even for those not married, that, that to think about the ways in which we come from this age of divorce in which things have been taken apart that belong together, how then do we go and see what God is trying to do in bringing things back together? So as we talked about order, that image of order, it it's, shouldn't be lost on us that Jesus in his appeal goes back to that Genesis pre-fall created order. He doesn't go to some other place in this debate, but to that original design, the order in which God had, had sort of bestowed for us. He goes to that first spot, which will shade the rest of the argument. If, if this is, I just, I think this is funny, but this is a headline from this week. And this might paint a little bit into Wendell Berry's quote here a little bit. The bottom text might be tall. What is radical monogamy? There's a new style of relationship in town. There's a new type of relationship style in town. It's called marriage. <laughs> <coughs> this was a, a headline in Vox, which is like a, a big news. I mean, this is not like, um, this is not a joke headline. This is a real headline. And, and, what is this new thing called radical monogamy? monogamy. Um, the kids these days. There's a new type of relationship in town. Um, yeah, so things, obviously, if, if you're part of a generation that says, is trying to rebrand marriage as radical monogamy, um, perhaps things have fallen apart more than we think they have. <coughs> um, and this is, this is the spirit of our age. This, this passage, while harsh, um, incidentally has no penalties with it. Um, you become an adulterer, but it's not like you go to hell or something like that. And, and, and in this passage, Mark 10, 
We find a, a passage very similar in Matthew 19 uh, or 14. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then Paul alludes to it. And they both have um, moderations on it. Uh, in Mark, it's the most tight that it is. And so we're going to stick with Mark's version of this. Paul, Paul's argument about marriage, which I think is interesting in divorce, is that there's a peace that should reign over it. That when we think about conflict that comes in marriage, he almost uh, subsumes marriage to, to this peace that he wants to overarch over it. Um, and so that's, there are places in the Bible where we can look at marriage and divorce and stuff from different lenses. Paul thinks if you're married to a non-believer and they want a divorce, just go for it. I mean, th- he's got a different way of thinking about this, whereas Jesus tends to, I think, because he's going back to created order, um, seems to think that something more metaphysical and real is happening here. And this is um, a tension within the New Testament. This is, uh, this is how um, Frederick Dale Bruner broke up the ages, ages which I think is, is interesting. Marriage is good for everyone, the Old Testament. Marriage is good, but not for everyone, the New Testament. Marriage is acceptable, but sex can make it sinful, the early church. Love is romantic, but not in marriage, the Middle Ages. Um, after all, marriage is good even for clergy, the Reformation, which I think is, is a funny one. Um, Christian marriage as super- spiritual companionship, the Puritans. And this one, he adds, they might have added a final chapter, marriage is okay, but in big trouble, the modern church. Um, and that's sort of what we walk into today, that marriage is okay, which is an interesting way to phrase it. Marriage is okay. Um, but in big trouble. Um, the divorce rate, um, I, when, when I, I don't try to be a sociologist in my preaching, uh, but I looked up stuff this week. The divorce rate is declining, but that's partially because more and more people aren't getting married. Um, and so it, it, it's below 50%, closer to 40% today, um, but it is in decline to some degree, but the opt-out of marriage is much higher, so much so that people might be practicing radical monogamy for the time that they're together, rather than marriage, which I think classically we would have just called dating. Um, but, but needless to say, um, you know, we have these, these periods in which uh, the church lives into. The divorce rate is down. What I think is challenging for listening to this text today, which um, is, is outside of the context of most of human history, is that 70% of divorces are initiated by women today. Um, and, and you could say a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that um, situations of abuse and this and that where, where, where marriages are meant to, they're broken to the point in which termination might be the best thing or, or is the best thing. I don't want to get into that, but obviously at 70%, it's much higher than, than you would think. Among college-age women, it's 90% are, or college-educated women. 90% of divorces are initiated by college-educated women in, in their marriages, which is just a staggering thing. And one of the things that I thought about, and so in Jesus, in this context, in this teaching, he's doing a lot to re-empower women in their equality towards men. What perhaps has happened is that we've gone so far down that road, and, and it's not lost to me. There's a number of Christian uh, women influencers um, I won't say their names, that have all sort of gone into divorce recently. And the reason is, is often so that they can find themselves. 
um, so that I can be freed again. That I was living, um, me and my partner, we're great, we love each other, we're going to co-parent, and it's going to be beautiful, and I'm going to be free to find my expressive self all over again. Um, These are challenging times and teachings for such a thing. Um, 90% is high, uh, um, and then there, there are reasons for that, but I, like I said, I didn't want to get too far into the sociology here. I, th- just to lighten things up, Brian and Carla told me this joke about a 90-year-old couple who goes in for marriage counseling or, or to divorce attorney, and they say, oh, I want to get separated, we want to get divorced, and the guy says, you've made it so long, you lived in holiness, you've done so many good things, why would you get divorced? And, and they say, well, we wanted to wait until the children were dead. Uh, <laughs> Which I find the older you are, the more you laugh at that joke. My mom laughed at it so hard, I was like, should I be worried about something? <laughs> um, i got to stay alive, because um, this, this could come to an end here, um, all that I've known. Um, so yeah, there's, there's this, the, oh, that is the other thing, the divorce rate among the grade, grade divorce is what they called it, which I thought was mean, among 50 and plus. Uh, is also on the increase, too. So divorce, in what we mean and what we talk about when we talk about marriage, is quite staggering today. And so to come back to this teaching, to hear it again, and what God intended, I think would be good for us. Not to, not to use it as a way to, to beat people or to put uh, out prolonged guilt, but to say, what is the intention of which God is calling us into in marriage? What was meant to be here? And so we get to the teaching. So the Pharisees came and tested him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. There's a couple things going on here. First, the Pharisees come to test Jesus. Why is this question a test? Well, If we go back in Mark's gospel, one of the things that John the Baptist is beheaded for is for saying to Herod that he is not supposed to be with this divorced woman that he's with. And so as Jesus here is entering into Jerusalem, closer to where Herod is, for Jesus to take up John's mantle and to say that that marriage is broken as well, for the Pharisees, this is a good time to get somebody else to do your dirty work. Somebody else to kill Jesus. And so the question comes out of that place, is, is that you've been close to John, or your disciples have been close to John, what is this lawful for us to do? Now what Jesus does, and this is one of the things that's amazing about Jesus and rabbis in general, is if you ask a question, they ask a question back. But what Jesus says is, what did Moses command you? Which would be odd for a rabbi to say. Moses is the one who's, who's sort of given us this law from on high. He's the one who's instructed us in this way. What did Moses command you? In the Greek, it would say Moses permitted us um, in the next one. But, but he's asking, what did Moses command of you? And then in the next passage, Jesus is going to say, it's your hardness of heart for this reason. There's a bit going on here, but what I think Jesus is doing here is pointing out that in the children of the old age, we'll look to this this prohibition or this allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy as where they should come from. But as people of the new age, of this renewed creation, we look backwards further 
into God's intention in the garden that restored order from there. They respond, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. This is the passage from Deuteronomy that they're referring to. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from, uh, uh, sends her from his house, and after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. Long, long teaching there. Uh, but if a man, the question for the Pharisees is if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he's allowed to write her a certificate of divorce. So in the Old Testament, this is the governing logic of how to handle divorce. What is fascinating is they have uh, two rabbinic schools coming up with a different answer to what does displeasing to him mean? One rabbi, the one who incidentally loses this battle over time or is the minority position, holds that this is similar to the exceptions that Matthew allows for in his telling of this story. Sexual infidelity, sexual acts, um, sexual, sexual um, disorder, those type of things are the reasons proper for divorce. Extreme minority opinion. Um, rabbi Akiba, who's, who's very famous, uh, Rabbi Hillel, um, uh, uh, Hillel, uh, Carla can pronounce it later for you if you want it correctly. He, um, he says a spoiled meal is adequate grounds for divorce. Akiba, who I know, he has this wonderful phrase that scripture is the temple and uh, Song of Songs is its holy of holies, which I always thought was nice. He says that you can divorce if you see one prettier. Um, you can write a certificate of divorce for that, which puts a different spin on the why he might have thought Song of Songs was so nice. Anyways, um, uh, these two rabbinic interpretations are, are sort of still at war at this time. There are those, like John the Baptist, who will hold that, that marriage is more permanent of an institution than that. But like I said, it seems to be the minority position that, that if a man wants to, he can whenever. Now, I don't think um, the rabbinic tradition is saying like, burnt toast, it's done. I think they're saying that you have the right to do so, not, not the um, command to exercise in this way. Does that make sense? It's, I, I don't want to throw the rabbis too far under the bus on this. Um, so Jesus is being ans asked both to enter into that John the Baptist question, which gets him killed, and to be asked to be entered into a live aspect of, of rabbinic interpretation. What is the instruction around what Moses has for us? But Jesus doesn't quite turn the question on them, but he says it's because of your hearts, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. It's because your hearts were hard Moses wrote you this law. What Jesus is saying is that while this is maybe permitted, and that's the, the language he uses when he asks them the question. It is not God's ideal. And it's the fact that because you are weak, because that you are unwilling to live in this new age that God has promised, or the original covenant in which God has sent us in, this is why you walk in that way. God has grace for you in this way to live and be that way. But it's only because your hearts are hard. 
If we think about hardness of hearts, I think about that, um, come thou fount, teach my heart to sing thy praise. Like that, that for Christians or for the Jew, is, is to, to have hard hearts is to have hearts closed to the praise of God. And so while this may be allowed, I think the warning, you might go, nice turn of phrase, um, that your hearts were hard. But what's actually is it's a, it's a soul sickness that we have with hard hearts. It's not just simply something we just hear and throw off and move on from. Moses allowed this because your hearts were hard. If you remember um, in the Old Testament, often there's this, this practice of circumcision, but the goal is that true circumcision of the heart. Um, that would require a softness to be cut. Um, and it's a softness that doesn't come easily. Um, and then Jesus, and Paul does this often too, is that in these, these live arguments, you, you, you go to a different text. And, and so what Jesus does here is he goes back to that Genesis, that original ordering, that at the beginning. And so what he's saying is that that was allowed for that time in which we were of hardness of heart, but what was intended was something else. So we had exemption for a time, but something else was intended. And in that intending, he goes back to that original pairing, that at the beginning God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus in Mark's gospel is this dawn of this new age, of this new creation, of this new time. And this new time won't be known by disorders of the old time, but will be renewed again. And so he says this teaching. Now, what's amazing about the early church period time, and perhaps uh, the first time in which they live sort of in a pagan society, is that the Christian sexual ethic is radically different from what was in surrounding and cultures. The Jews would have been more different, but the Christian sexual ethic is much, much different. First, this male and female thing, that, that they're um, made in, in complementary sexes to each other. Uh, and this is um, N.T. Wright. I don't know if some of you are familiar with the fight between complementarians and egalitarians. Um, and Wright says, who's, who, he has no... He's not a complementarian in the way that that phrase is used in our modern discussions, but he says, I, I hate saying that I'm not a complementary because it's too good of a word to give up. Men and women were designed to live in complementary relationship to one another, is what he says. They were meant to be these two things living in relation to each other. It brought me to this passage from, from Matthew Henry. Women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head, to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from his arm, under his arm, to be protected by him, near to his heart, and to be loved by him. This original creation was not um, from over, it was not from under, but they were meant to live in mutual relationship and mutual dependence to one another. They're meant to be in that way. So Jesus, in going back to this, and like I said, in this age of divorce, um, that Barry called us to, this isn't just a call to fidelity in marriage. If you're going back to Genesis, 
that the people of this new age, the people who are descendants, the people who are those called by Jesus to be his people of this new age, we don't just go back and pick the one passage, but we go back and we try to live fully as God intended for us to be. Casting off our hardness of hearts and living in that place. And Jesus um, and Genesis have this, this way in which these two become one flesh. The earlier man, when a woman is separated from Adam, it, there's a Jewish tradition that holds him as sort of um, containing both sexes. He's, he's the one man, he is the human. And so when he falls asleep and God takes out his side, he has another half. He's, he's now halved, and the two halves are what make the fullness of this one. There's, this is where we get into um, uh, Jesus in his resurrected body is one who balances male and female perfectly as well, that he is the one perfect human like the same Adam, that he is somehow the fusion of those two things together again. And so Jesus, for what Jesus' marriage is in, is, is the one half finding its other half again and becoming one flesh. And in that fusion, there's, there's the danger in which you can't pull it apart. These things don't pull apart easy. And again, if, um, I hope we've done enough work that we're thinking about marriage, but we're also thinking about all the disorders of our world. The way that God intended... Um, this is, we live lives as avatars today in some ways in which we can adorn ourselves with different patterns, largely through screens and stuff like that. But we have all these ways in which we um, don't live in any sort of natural rhythm of, of, of neighborliness, of care, of stewardship for God's creation. Um, we live lives so abstracted. I'm going back to Barry's quote, it's... <laughs> Don't be uh, so wise to think as you can put all things back together. Work is taking one and two things and putting them back together. And so Jesus goes back to this, this created order and this sort of radical sexual ethic that defines the, the early church period. It's incidentally that slaves and women make up a large portion of the new, the first century and onward church because this is good news for them. Um, the idea that you could... For men in particular, that you could join sexually with anybody who you want, rip that apart and go do it again with somebody else, was a burden that slaves bared greatly and a burden that women also bared greatly as well. Uh, it was more uh, pr protective to watch the male line. So the woman who was married to a man, particularly in Roman culture, was to be um, infidelity to that man so you would know that the heir was the heir that, that that the line would go through but a married man was in some ways freed to then go about elsewhere um, because it didn't matter in those other situations um, in this first century world and so this ethic while it seems harsh in our culture today was good news for those on the underside of society at that time Jesus then um, modifies it even more. Women were created from the rib of man. Uh, that's Matthew Henry. Um, when they went in the house again, and this is common in these scenes, Jesus then instructs the disciples, asked him about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Um, Jesus ups the anti here for even the Jew because in some sense, the one who goes about after that is creating um, uh, 
is becoming an adulterer, which is not the way it was. Um, you were free after the certificate of divorce. But now you're, you're going about as one continuing in that pattern. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where he goes to next. Um, the passage that we read for today, which Brian read for before us, I'm trying to think where to go to from here. Jesus blesses the children. People were bringing little children. And, and what we're going to see in this pattern is the household codes that made up the ancient world go from marriage to children to slaves and how you should treat them. We see this in Paul's letters too. There's this, this, this sort of way in which, and Paul's instruction around those are deeply humanizing as well for the time. Um, the, that this goes from marriage and that sexual union to children. And then the last passage, we'll get to I think in two weeks, the penultimate passage before he goes into Jerusalem is about who will be the slave to one another. So that pattern is followed here. Um, it's this sort of like household code for the church that Jesus is displaying through these passages. How should we be ordered? Um, so children, people bringing little children for him to place his hands on them, common Jewish practice, and bless them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of, belongs, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. The, the heart of this passage, there's two things. One in which is, is that Jesus has time, um, which I think is an instruction for us, both as one who thinks that everyone is so busy, who are we to bug Jesus? Um, Jesus has time. And the second is, is as his disciples uh, it's not, it's, it's not lost on me that often in our busyness we have less compassion for other people because we don't have time. Um, when I'm in a hurry to get somewhere, I have less time to be related to somebody and to sit with somebody and to help for someone. And so that Jesus takes the time is, I think, a lesson for us in our age of hyper-busyness. Um, but he says, let the little children come for me. And the heart of this passage is, is that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Children in the ancient world were, were vulnerable, um, dependent, and socially margined. Um, anyone who will not receive the kingdom as if they are vulnerable, if they are dependent to it, as if they see from the margins because of it. So often, and this goes back to if you think you're earning the kingdom through something through remaining in a marriage, <laughs> or whatever it is, you're, you're missing the point. The ones who will enter into it receive it as if they have nothing at all. We want to bring something to enter into the kingdom. And it's, <coughs> for me, and I'm sure it is for many of you, it is much harder to receive a true gift without doing anything reciprocal or giving back. We become vulnerable in that moment. Somebody does something, uh, I had a friend who just sent me a 40th birthday present, we normally don't do stuff like that, and I instantly went to, what can I send him? 
how can this be equaled out to some level? Unless we're willing to enter into it in vulnerability and dependence upon it, we in the future will not receive it. So Jesus, in the end, takes the little children and blesses him in his arms. He takes these deficient ones and, and holds them and restores them. This brings us to the, the quote on the back of the bulletin, which I think ties these two churches or two teachings together. Fitly, he does not take them into his arms. Fitly, he does take them up into his arms to bless them, as it were, lifting into his own bosom and reconciling himself to his creation. And reconciling himself to his creation, which in the beginning fell from him and was separated from him. As we walk this path in Lent, the cross itself stands as human, humanity's greatest opportunity to write God a certificate of divorce. It stands for us rejecting what God has done for us. In the beginning, we fell from him, and we would like to continue in separation from him. Crucify him, crucify him. And yet what God does in lifting the children and calling us back to that original marriage design and bringing us to that place is bringing back the resounding um, restoration of that creation. And that we as disciples begin to walk in that path. This, uh, in the words of the theologian Karl Barth, is, is that we often say no to God. God has a no for us in our sinfulness, but it's God's yes that overcomes his no and goes deeper. We walk the path towards that separation that we meaningly, mean, purposely put Jesus on the cross as that sign. And yet God resurrects that one to create a people who join him in reconciling himself to his creation again. Let us pray. Uh, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God, let us pray. God, we hear in Jesus' teaching a call back to your design and your order for us. We as a people live in competition and a challenge to invent ourselves and busyness and stress. We find our own ways to practice disorder in this creation, to redo the fall all over again. And yet your son, when asked, points us back to what you intended for us, for two halves to become one and whole. So does you and your ministry on earth, you are restoring people. You are bringing healing sight to the blind and instruction to us so that we might be people of your reconciled creation. As we live in this age of divorce, may we, following the pattern of your son in our small and own ways, look back to what you blessed us into, that order in which you had bestowed upon us. 
and then find ways not to put it all back together. But to take one thing and another thing and to place it together again so that we may be a sign of your new creation. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.